and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're going microscopic, exploring what tiny tardigrades can teach us about desiccation, vaccine delivery, and even space travel. In our last episode, we discussed how much there is to learn from studying animal adaptations to extreme conditions, whether that's how hibernating ground squirrels can help us treat heart attacks, or how bowhead whales and naked mole rats can help us understand old age. This week, we're continuing our tour of the animal kingdom with perhaps the most hardcore animal species around, the tardigrades. These adorable-looking microscopic animals are seemingly able to withstand some of the harshest conditions found on planet Earth and beyond. You can boil them, freeze them, throw them into outer space, and they'll still survive. The same cannot quite be said about the human species. So how can we use these incredible adaptations to solve some of our own problems? I spoke with Professor Thomas Boothby, a molecular biologist at the University of Wyoming, whose lab researches how organisms survive at the extremes of life. To start us off, I began by asking him, what exactly is a tardigrade? So tardigrades are microscopic animals. So being animals, they're multicellular, they have complex organs and tissues, you know, they have a brain, they have sensory organs like eye spots. And despite being microscopic, they're extremely robust. So they can survive a number of environmental extremes that we typically think of as being incompatible with life. You can freeze tardigrades down to above about a degree above absolute zero, the temperature at which all molecular motion stops. You can heat some species up past the boiling point of water. They can go for days or weeks with little or no oxygen. They can survive thousands of times as much radiation as you or I could. They do this really neat trick that we're particularly interested in, which is that they can dry out. So they can lose all the hydrating water inside their bodies and cells and survive that. And if people have heard of tardigrades before, they've probably heard about them because they're the only animal that's been shown to survive prolonged exposure to the vacuum of outer space. How unique are these adaptations to tardigrades? Are there other species that can cope with such a high degree of drying out or radiation or extreme temperatures? In terms of drying out, I think people think this seems like a very sort of rare exotic trait, but actually throughout the kingdoms of life, desiccation tolerant organisms are found sort of on every branch of the tree of life. If you think about plants, for example, nearly every land plant has some sort of desiccation tolerant life stage, whether that be seeds or spores or pollen, many bacteria can do this. Where this trait is sort of rarer is within the animal kingdom. And so right now we only sort of know of four groups of animals uh, that have members that can perform some of these tricks. So those include tardigrades, that includes some arthropods like brine shrimp, for example, It includes some nematode worms and then some other little animals known as rotifers, which are aquatic, very small little animals. What I think makes tardigrades very unique is sort of their ability to survive so many different stresses, not just drying out, but also very cold temperatures, very hot temperatures. 
extreme radiation. And to do this seemingly at any life stage, so eggs and adults from tardigrades are, are very radio tolerant or are very resistant to cold temperatures. So I think in that case, it makes them quite unique. And where do they normally live? I'm guessing they don't normally live in the vacuum of space. No, they don't normally live in the vacuum of outer space. Here on Earth, you can find tardigrades in almost any sort of environment. So they've been found on every continent, including Antarctica. There are marine species that live in the ocean. There are terrestrial species that live on land. There are freshwater species that live in lakes or rivers. And so kind of this hardiness being so tough has probably allowed them to colonize all these different environments. How do they do what they do? Because what you've just described to me is a list of superpowers and not even one superhero has all of those powers. Normally each superhero only has about one power. But like going down to just above absolute zero, that's not an environment they will have been adapted to, as in that's not a temperature that we experience in the natural world. How on earth is that something that they adapted to? That is a really interesting question, right? How did an organism evolve to survive under conditions that it would never have experienced before? And sort of the, the best explanation that we have for that right now is this idea of cross tolerance, meaning by evolving to tolerate one sort of extreme condition, the animals may have sort of as a byproduct now been able to survive other extreme conditions. I think a really good example of this is desiccation and radiation tolerance. So tardigrades being sort of so small and diminutive, at least the terrestrial species, probably every day undergo desiccation or drying to some degree. And when that happens, we know that that imparts a lot of different stresses on their cells. For example, their DNA fragments, and when they rehydrate, they're able to sort of stitch it back together. Now, similar things happen when tardigrades are irradiated. Radiation does a lot of damage to their DNA. And so just as a byproduct of being able to repair their DNA that's been damaged due to this drying process, they probably have very robust mechanisms in place that when their DNA is damaged by radiation, they're still able to cobble it back together, even though in nature, they're never going to be exposed to the thousands of gray of radiation that they've been shown to, to survive. When you say they're desiccating, how much water are they losing? So when tardigrades dry out, just sort of air dry naturally, they're probably getting down to around 5 to 10% water content. That seems ridiculous. Yeah. So by comparison, if we lose about 30% of our water content, we will die. A typical house plant, if it loses about 40% of its water content, it will die. But tardigrades are losing 90 to 95% of their water content, and they can stay in that dry state for years or even decades. And uh, when you place them back in water, they sort of rehydrate and reanimate. And pretty soon you'll be seeing them running around, feeding and reproducing like nothing happened to them. Do they have any physical barriers to drying out? Or are they just like, ah, sod it. We're just going to let the water evaporate away because we know we can deal with it. Well, no. So tardigrades, they many species need to dry out relatively slowly. And so this allows them time to one, sense that they're drying out and two, sort of build up the protectants that they're going to make that are going to allow them to survive that process. And to sort of help themselves dry out slowly, tardigrades do this cool trick 
where they pull their eight legs and head inside their cuticle, which you can sort of think of as their exoskeleton. And they curl up into this little ball-like structure known as a ton. That comes from the German word for cask or barrel. So I guess the original German scientists looking at this process thought they looked like little barrels of wine when they were drying out. And what that does is that allows them to kind of bury the tips of their claws and their mouth, which are the points of their body where they lose water very readily from. It allows them to bury those parts of their body inside this little ball-like structure, which helps slow down the drying process even more. So it's just giving them more time to sort of respond to this harsh environment that they sense is, is coming on. Now, you mentioned that they have some protections that they can put in place as they're drying out slowly. And presumably it's those protections that you're most interested in. How on earth can an animal survive drying out that much? What is it they're doing so that they don't die? One thing that we found is that when these animals are drying out, they start making a whole bunch of a very specific protein. And these proteins have sort of a long, cumbersome name, which is cytoplasmic abundant heat-soluble proteins, or CAHS proteins. It's a, it's a mouthful, so yeah. let's just call them the tardigrade yeah. proteins. They're unique to tardigrades. So if we look at the level of sequence conservation, and we look and see if any other organisms out there have these, it doesn't look like they do. So this is sort of a unique adaptation that tardigrades have come up with. Do they look like any other protein that we see in nature? So sort of adding more intrigue to this question, right? These tardigrade proteins, they're what we call intrinsically disordered proteins. So if people remember back to their biochemistry 101 course, they probably learned that the structure of a protein is very important for its function. However, these tardigrade proteins kind of turned that idea on their head because disordered proteins lack a stable three-dimensional structure, and yet many are known to play very important roles in different cell biological processes, including stress tolerance. So, you know, if we look at what sorts of shapes these proteins like to adopt, although they are very dynamic, in general, they appear to exist in sort of a dumbbell-like ensemble of shapes. So they have kind of two collapsed ends and those ends are sort of held apart from each other by this long sort of disordered linker between the two of them. And how does that protein help them survive drying out? I should say, what is it about drying out that normally kills us? Yeah, so when cells dry out, a lot of bad things happen. And it's important to sort of understand that the stress of drying out isn't an all or nothing stress, meaning at the early stages of desiccation, there are damages being incurred to the cell that are different than the damages that are incurred at the later stage of desiccation. So for example, imagine a cell that has just started to dry out. Water is leaving the cell. The cell is starting to shrink down and sort of reduce in volume. And what that does is it makes the cytoplasm, the inside of the cell, extremely crowded, right? And why this is bad is you have a lot of different proteins and cellular components that when they get very crowded, they can start to aggregate, they can start to clump together. And this sort of makes them non-functional. It's just a big conglomeration of, of junk at that point. Now, when you get to even lower water contents, what can happen is you can get down to the level where now there's 
insufficient water to actually hydrate things like proteins. And one of the things that keeps proteins really well folded and behaving nicely is that they have this sort of shell of water around them that's making hydrogen bonds with the exterior of the protein. When those hydrogen bonds are lost, a lot of the impetus for the protein to remain well folded is lost and proteins start to unfold and then become non-functional. Wow, so it's not just a concentration thing. Everything just goes haywire. Exactly. So a really efficient mediator of desiccation protection or desiccation tolerance is going to sort of contribute to preventing multiple things from going wrong. So in the early stages of drying, it'll be preventing proteins from aggregating. And at the latter stages of drying, it will be preventing proteins from unfolding. And sort of to that point, what we found with these tardigrade proteins is that depending on sort of their concentration and hydration level, they either act really well at preventing aggregation or they act very well at preventing unfolding. And so they're kind of tuned to deal with these different physiological conditions and chemical conditions, depending on water content and crowding within the cell. So do they kind of form the hydrogen bonds as if they were the water themselves surrounding the proteins? So that's a really interesting idea and one that's been put forward in the literature before, not particularly for these tardigrade proteins, but for other protectants. What we've actually found in how we think that these proteins are working to help maintain those hydrogen bonds is we see that the exterior of these tardigrade proteins contain amino acids that are very hydrophilic, meaning water-loving. So remember I mentioned tardigrades don't become truly dry. They still have about like 5 or 10% of their water content left. What we think is happening is that the exterior of these tardigrade proteins is very sort of attractive or sticky to water. And so those tiny little residual amounts of water are sticking to the tardigrade proteins. And what we've seen is actually that the tardigrade proteins, they start to self-associate and they form this higher order structure that's actually a gel. So it has all the sort of properties of, of jello essentially. But you can imagine this gel as being made up of fibers that are sort of interconnected, almost like a spider web. And those fibers are, again, as I mentioned, very hydrophilic. So they're attracting and concentrating water. And so what we think is happening is the tardigrades aren't retaining any more water, but they are organizing the small amount of water that they do have into these local areas of hydration, which are helping to keep things within that gel hydrated. This is fascinating. I can see why you would want to study tardigrades just for the sheer hell of it, because they're incredible. But you're also then applying this research to use for human health. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the ideas that we have is that right now, a lot of biologic pharmaceuticals, so that is pharmaceuticals that are made from or derived from living organisms, are very, very effective. So this would include things like vaccines, blood products, cell-based therapies, antibodies, et cetera. All the cool new tech that we hear about on this podcast. Exactly, exactly. Now, despite being really effective, a lot of biologic pharmaceuticals have a major drawback, and that is that they're sort of inherently unstable. And the current way that we get around this is using the cold chain. 
So the cold chain is essentially just a series of refrigerators and freezers that the pharmaceutical industry uses to keep biologics cold, you know, from sort of the onset of their production through transportation and storage to being used in the clinic. Now, in the United States or in the UK or, you know, other more developed parts of the world, keeping things cold may not seem like such a big problem. But in many sort of remote or, or developing regions, maintaining a stable electrical system or even having those refrigerators and freezers can be a major sort of economic and logistical hurdle to getting medicine to people. I remember that at the start of the COVID pandemic. Yeah. It was why there was such a huge push for, I think it was the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine over the Pfizer one, because that one didn't have to be refrigerated as much. Well, right. So that's a great example where you had this great new technology, right? This mRNA-based Pfizer vaccine. The issue with that was to maintain mRNA in a really stable and effective state, it needs to be frozen at negative 80 degrees Celsius. So a freezer, say, in your house will go down to about negative 20 degrees Celsius. So people certainly don't have this equipment in their houses. Hospitals would, but some pharmacies wouldn't. And certainly in sort of developing parts of the world or very remote regions, having a negative 80 freezer can be a sort of a huge, a huge issue. So our idea is that tardigrades, when they dry out, they stabilize and maintain the integrity of all their cellular components, which include proteins, which include mRNAs, which include DNA and membranes, all the things that biologic pharmaceuticals are made out of. And they do this in a dry state at ambient conditions, or in some cases, even elevated temperatures, right? So I mentioned before that, you know, tardigrades, when they dry out, they can tolerate temperatures well above the boiling point of water, up to like, I think the record is 151 degrees Celsius. That's absolutely bonkers to me. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzipped.com, or come and say hello to us over on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. Coming up at the Genetics Society, the 1st of June is the application deadline to apply for this round of Junior Scientist Conference grants. These grants of up to £1,000 are open to undergraduate, master's, PhD students and recent postdoctoral scientists to support attendance at genetics conferences. And on the 29th of June is the Genetic Society's Summer Symposium. Taking place both in Cambridge and online, this year's symposium is titled DNA Past, Present and Future and celebrates the 70th anniversary of the description of the double helix. You'll need to register both if you're attending in Cambridge or online and you can do so through the Genetic Society's website and as always there's a link in our show notes. For now let's get back to tardigrades and my chat with Thomas Boothby. So right now what we've been doing and we recently published a paper on this is we've been taking both sort of natural products from tardigrades, these tardigrade proteins, as well as engineered versions of those proteins that we've tuned to either promote this sort of anti-aggregation property that they have or 
to tune them to promote this sort of anti-unfolding or stabilizing property that they have. And the first biologic pharmaceutical that we've targeted is one called human blood clotting factor eight, or just factor eight. Now, what this is, it's a protein component that we have in our blood that normally, if you get a cut, it's essential for stopping bleeding quickly or causing a, a blood clot. Now, in cases of extreme trauma or in cases of genetic disease, for example, in hemophilia A, which affects about one in every 5,000 men, physicians will administer factor eight to help speed up clotting in the case of a hemophiliac or, or somebody that's incurred sort of an extreme trauma. And this is a very effective treatment. The problem is best practices dictate that factor eight be maintained at negative 20 degrees. So you can imagine in cases of natural disaster or on the battlefield or in a clinic in a remote area, having a freezer running efficiently at negative 20 degrees may not be an option. And so in this first sort of work that we've published, we've taken this factor eight and we formulate it or basically mix it with these different versions of the tardigrade protein that we've engineered. And we've shown that not only can we stabilize this factor in a dry state at ambient conditions, but now we can actually take it through some sort of real world field-like conditions. So for example, one test that we did was to look at, can we rehydrate and desiccate the factor multiple times? And will the tardigrade protein stop damage that's incurred through these multiple desiccation cycles? When you do that, the normal sort of damage that's incurred is the aggregation that I mentioned before. And what we saw was that using certain engineered variants that we had, we were able to very effectively stop that damage from taking place. On the flip side, we also wanted to look at thermal stress. So you can imagine, say, if we have vaccines or this factor eight sort of being transported in the bed of a pickup truck through you know, a very hot region, not only do we need to stabilize those medicines in a dry state, but they need to also be able to deal with very high temperatures. And so, you know, we also use some different engineered versions of this tardigrade protein that we have to dry out factor eight. And then we actually left it at 95 degrees Celsius for days and then looked at whether or not we were able to still have functional factor eight. And we saw that with certain versions of our tardigrade protein, we were. Along with desiccation and drying out and how that affects the proteins, you also mentioned that tardigrades can cope with immense amounts of radiation and their DNA falling apart. How? So that is a little bit less well understood. If I had to sort of put in some conjecture, I'd say all organisms have to deal with DNA damage to some degree, right? Just in normal sort of replication processes, mistakes are made just sort of through normal exposure to less extreme environments, damage is incurred. And so we, and essentially every other organism, have DNA repair mechanisms. It may be that tardigrades have just evolved to basically turn these on at full blast when they experience damage. There have been some reports from other groups of a tardigrade protein known as DSUP or damage suppressor, which is thought to actually work not to repair damage, but to actually prevent damage to DNA. And it's thought or postulated to work by essentially associating with DNA 
and then wrapping around it and acting almost as a shield to absorb the radiation damage that would normally just be sort of directed at the DNA. How are you using this or how is this going to possibly be used as a technology in the future? Yeah, so I think one thing that my lab is particularly interested in is thinking about how we can take lessons from tardigrades and how they protect themselves from from radiation and other extreme conditions to try and advance humanity's presence in space. And so when you're in outer space, of course, astronauts are exposed to quite a great deal more cosmic radiation than here on Earth, because we sort of have our atmosphere here on Earth, which protects us from a lot of cosmic radiation. And so, of course, we won't be engineering humans with tardigrade proteins to send them into space. Oh, but... you're not. <laughs> no, We're not going to have special human tardigrade astronauts. I mean, it sounds like tardigrades could do it themselves, to be honest. Yeah. So that's one of the sort of impetuses for this study is, you know, tardigrades can survive in the vacuum of outer space. They've been shown to survive and, and reproduce under sort of normal spaceflight conditions. And so the idea, again, isn't to engineer an astronaut with a tardigrade gene, but rather to look at maybe when tardigrades are in space and they're being exposed to all this cosmic radiation, maybe they're upregulating production of antioxidants, things that are going to scavenge reactive oxygen species that are generated from radio damage. And so maybe we can augment astronauts' diets or give them supplements that are going to sort of increase their natural production of antioxidants and are going to help them survive this better. How many tardigrades are there flying around in space right now? <laughs> I'm not actually aware of any active research going on. Uh, with tardigrades in space. Last year, we just wrapped up a mission to the International Space Station, where we were culturing the animals on the space station to look at how over multiple generations, those animals cope with being in those spaceflight conditions. And those are studies that are we're, we're still teasing apart the data that we got back here in the lab now. But they were kept within the confines of the space station. You're not just firing them out into space and there are just four little tardigrades floating no, around no. in microgravity. They're a very, very well-controlled and, and contained experiment, yeah. What do you think it's going to look like 50 years from now, say? what What's the kind of the goal for tardigrade research? If we were to give you all the money, where do you hope we'd get to? Well, I hope that we would continue to understand more of the fundamental biology of these organisms. But I think, too, you know, my hope would be that we could continue to take these lessons from nature, lessons from tardigrades, and hopefully branch out beyond tardigrades to other organisms, and that people would sort of begin to appreciate this bridge between fundamental research and applied research and see that folks studying tardigrades or fruit flies or roundworms aren't necessarily just sort of messing around and it's all just sort of an intellectual pursuit, but that doing fundamental biology can really result in real effective treatments or solutions to societal problems. That's all for now. Thanks to Thomas Boothby from the University of Wyoming, and we'll be back next time chasing down the perpetrator of a scientific whodunit and joining the DNA detectives on the hunt for the causes of cancer. 
For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip, and please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference, and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Sally LePage. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learner societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. The executive producer is Kat Arney. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. The logo was designed by James Mayle and audio production was by Emma Werner. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.